You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Declan Edwards, welcome back to the Australian Finance Podcast today. I'm stoked to be back. It's wonderful to have you here again because we had so much positive feedback when you came on a few months ago now for your very first episode and we got you up in stage on our Newcastle Rass Roadshow event last week and everyone loved it. So today we're going to be talking about happiness, but talking about happiness in the workplace and to do with our careers, which is a slightly different angle to what we focused on last time. Yeah, spot on. Obviously, last time we dove a lot into personal and individual happiness and uh, obviously today looking more at a lens on a place where a lot of us spend a lot of our life and a lot of hours. So if we can get happy workplaces, I truly believe the ripple effect of that is quite profound just because of how much time we spend at work. Yeah, it's amazing. Just something I wouldn't have thought about at 18 of who am I actually working with? You think a lot about what are you going to do in the job, but not who are you going to spend all day with talking to, whether they're going to be a positive or a negative influence on your life. So I'm really interested to have this conversation. But why, why do you think it's important to start talking about happiness in the workplace? They seem like two words that might not always go together. Yeah, and to be honest, when I first started talking about workplace happiness as a KPI of great organizations, I was getting laughed out of a lot of rooms. Uh, it's been interesting to see the change in mentality and perspective really since 2020 onwards of organizations going, ah, oh, turns out if we don't take care of our people, we really struggle to attract and keep good people. Uh, which has a massive impact on our bottom line and performance. 
So I, I think answering this question of why happiness in the workplace, we can look at it from two angles. The first is why happiness in the workplace for individuals. So if you're listening to this and you're an employee, why should you care about how happy your workplace is? And I alluded to it before. The fact is you're going to spend a lot of time at work. You know, there's been all this study and research and reports that show that how you feel about your career and your workplace have a direct impact on your mental health and on your overall perception of how well and, and fulfilling your life is. There's a lot of research that shows your direct manager has a direct impact on your happiness and mental health. Some studies even suggest more so than your significant other because you spend even more time with the people at work than you do with the person that you're literally sleeping next to at night. So I think we can't ignore it, right? It's too big of a part of our life to go, well, everything else is going really well, but for 40 hours a week, if you're working full time, uh, or even if you're while those pioneering organizations moving to four-day work weeks, 32 to 40 hours a week, if you're so unhappy and unfulfilled there, you're going to feel like there's a gap. So we need to look at it from that lens. And then the other angle is why happiness at the workplace for organizations. And this has been a huge area of research for me over the last few years. I've actually just submitted my master's thesis in positive psychology specifically on this topic. And what's been really interesting to dive into is the fact that happiness is a strategic advantage. You know, historically, organizations would often put their priorities as priority number one, shareholders and stakeholders. Let's make as much money as possible. Let's make as much profit as possible. Let's grow economically. Priority two, uh, we'll occasionally look at our customer experience and how our customers and members feel. That's probably good to look at because then they'll refer more. Uh, and then eventually, maybe if you're lucky and there's enough time and resources left, we'll look at priority three, which is how our staff feel. Some pioneering researchers uh, and organizations about 10, 15 years ago came in and went, hang on, what if we flip that on its head? What if priority one was how our staff feel at work and we have really happy, fulfilled, thriving people who are confident and competent in their role and they really care about their work so they go over and above? Well, chances are that's going to lead to priority two being really happy customers because it's impossible to create happy customers from unhappy staff. You're just not going to have a good customer experience if your staff don't want to be there. And then if you have really happy customers, they refer more, they return more, you've got great retention. So then your shareholders are happy because you have better profit. And they went, oh my God, the recipe's been backwards for like a hundred years. And went, all we need to do is tip this on its head. And since then, there's been amazing research from Harvard, from Sean Aker and his team over there from Berkeley that go for every dollar that's strategically invested into improving the happiness of an organization, that organization can expect about $2.67 to $3.23 back in 12 months in direct and indirect costs. Now, I know a lot of people who listen to this are investing people. If I told you there was a share on the market that you could put a dollar into and get $2.67 to $3.23 back in 12 months, what are we all doing straight after this podcast, ladies and gentlemen? We are running to buy that share. So why are so many organizations slow to, to jump on this? It's been interesting to see this new wave and this new trend of organizations going, our greatest competitive advantage is happy people. Let's invest intentionally into it. You're speaking our language, Declan. It's interesting because I think in the past, if an employee was happy, unhappy in the workplace, the, the staff would have just thought it's a problem with that employee. But now it's something like, okay, well, maybe we look at our culture and we look at the whole organization. Are we creating an environment where people can thrive and not just survive day to day. Correct. And I will say on that note, before there's any managers wanting to jump down their Spotify or whatever you're listening to this through and be like, oh, you're saying it's my responsibility to look after the happiness of all my team. Not necessarily. 
I, I think if you're a leader and manager, it is not like other people's happiness is not your responsibility. Our happiness as individuals is our own personal responsibility. But if you are fortunate enough to be in a leadership or management position, I would say it's your opportunity. It is your privilege. It is your chance to create an environment that is conducive to happiness. What people choose to do with that environment entirely up to them. But it's up to you to go, you know what, I'm going to make the best space, the best culture, the best leaders and managers, the best systems and processes, the best resources to help my people feel and perform at their best. And then the rest is on them. I like that. I want to talk about some of those different factors that feed into how happy we feel in the workplace. And given it's a finance podcast, I thought we'd start with the money side of things. And you explained it really well at our Newcastle event the other week. How much money do we need to be earning from our job to be happy? Is there a point where our happiness will increase? Is there a cap? Talk to me about that. Yeah. So, in answer to the question, how much money do we need to have to be super happy? The answer is apparently an ever-growing amount because apparently (laughs) happiness is affected by inflation like anything else. Uh, Actually, funnily enough, I was asked to comment on a report that came out this week that showed that Australia, I believe it was the third or fourth most expensive country in the world for maximal happiness. Wow. So, in terms of how much money do you need to make for you to consider yourself happy, third or fourth highest. However, when I dove into that research, I had some big problems with it. The first is they asked people, how much money do you think you need to be your happiest? Which, of course, people are naturally going to skew up on that. You know what I mean? They go, oh, well, if I make 300,000, 400,000, 500,000, of course, my life will be infinitely better. And it's just this ever increasing bar. They didn't say to people, how happy are you one to 10? And how much money do you currently make You know, on a scale? Mm-hmm. And then compare the data, which would have been better. They just yeah. went, hey, what do you think you should make? And naturally, people skew high. The other thing they didn't report well on, because their figure, I think, was like 170000 Australian a year for an individual was where happiness was at That's peak. It's a lot, definitely. Huge, <laughs> huge compared to the median salary in Australia. Mental, right? What they didn't explain well, and something that I've been diving into more and more, is there is an S-curve to this. So, I want to explain what the S-curve means. I think it's very privileged and unfair to say that money doesn't buy happiness, right? Of course, money buys happiness, makes an impact. Uh, What we find is on the lower ends of income, when people are struggling to put a roof over their head, food on the table, when they're financially insecure, that is a massive barrier to feeling happy and fulfilled in life. So, of course, we need to solve that first. There's a massive increase in amount of happiness the more people make until they're out of that really financial struggle threshold. Then it keeps going up and then it starts to taper out towards the top end. What they didn't do well in this report that said, oh, you need to make 170000 a year in Australia to be your happiest, which is an astronomically high number. They didn't go, hey, if you make 80000 a year in Australia, you're not half as happy as someone making 160000 So, it's not like going from 80 to 160 is going to double your happiness. You'll Mm. double your income, but your happiness doesn't necessarily double. It might go up by 5 to 10%. But you might go, hey, the sacrifices I need to put in to make that extra 80 grand a year don't align with my values. They clash with what matters most to me in life, like family time. And you might go, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, that extra 80 grand is probably actually going to lower my overall life satisfaction and happiness. I might think I'm going to be happier, but it doesn't play out that way. So, in terms of answering the question, how much do we need to make? I say you need to make enough that all your survival needs are covered quite comfortably. Mm -hmm. And then 
what you do with any amount above that is be really clever about how you use it. And so far, there's three main ways that researchers found that um, we can buy happiness. Essentially. In fact, I think you cover these plus maybe some more in your book as a little <laughs> promo and shout out though everyone should buy your book. Uh, but basically, the big three are memories and experiences. So do things that you can look back on and go, I'm so glad I experienced that in my life. Right. Uh, anything investing into yourself. So health, well-being, personal growth, um, learning and developing new skills. And then the third one's altruism or giving back. Those are the big three. So I would say to people, once your survival needs are covered, anything you make past that, we should really be looking at those three areas. Okay, cool. And if we're bringing it back to a workplace context and we, we're happy enough with our salary at the moment and we're potentially wanting to look at are there any other levers we can pull in our current job to give our happiness a boost? What would you start with? Yeah, so I think the biggest one, it's not an easy lever to pull by any means, but I always tend to say to people, take a bit of a self-reflection and a, a good hard look at what your definition of a happy and successful career is. Because if you don't define what your blueprint for a happy and successful career is, chances are you're following someone else's. Right. For a lot of years, I, I tried to follow my father's. He's um, had a very, very esteemed and decorated career in the military. You know, before him, it was police force. Before that, it was military. Again, there's a long lineage of military or police force in my family. And I thought that would make me happy. I quickly realized it, it wouldn't. But I see so many people who made a decision for a career path when they were 18, 19, 20 years old and almost sunk cost fallacy went, well, I've come this far. I guess this is what I'm stuck with forever. I'll climb the ladder and hopefully it'll get better at some point. But the ladder is fundamentally leaning against the wrong wall for that person. So I don't care how high you, high you climb, you're not going to feel fulfilled. And so I think what we need to do as people is have a moment to go, what matters most to me in a career? And only you'll know the answer to that, right? Is it, you know, title and esteem? Is it financial, you know, recognition? Is it uh, flexibility? Is it meaning and purpose? Like sit down and go, what matters most to me? And start going, how much does my current job meet those? And if it doesn't, start by having some bold conversations with your leaders and managers in your workplace. Go, hey, I've done a bit of soul searching. This is what matters most to me in work. Is there a way I can meet more of this within my role or within this organization? You might be surprised that there actually are some, you just didn't know that they existed because you didn't know to look for them. Um, so definitely start with that. The other thing I'd recommend to help with that is a book called Ikigai. Uh, for those who are watching Live to 100 on Netflix at the moment, very popular series. Um, he talks about Ikigai, this Japanese concept of our life's purpose, what we're meant to do. And it exists at the intersection of four areas, which is what do I enjoy? Like, What do I actually like doing with my time? What am I good at? So what are my skills? What can I be paid well for? So I'm not in that financial struggle space we spoke about earlier. Uh, and what does the world need? What gives back and makes a difference? And you can almost chart for a lot of people. They can go, oh, my current role, you know, I'm good at it. I'm paid well for it. I like quite a lot of aspects for it, but it doesn't have much meaning and purpose. Okay, well, talk to your leader about that. How do we inject some more of that? Or you know what? I love the work I'm doing. It's so meaningful. It's so purposeful, but I'm really struggling with the skills of stepping into that next space. Okay, well, I need some professional development and upskilling, right? And so it can kind of give you a bit of a roadmap. Uh, they're definitely not quick levers to pull, but I think for improving our relationship with our current job, start with those. A, what is a fulfilling, happy, successful career look like to you as an individual? And B, use the Ikigai chart as a bit of a blueprint or roadmap to help with that. 
Do you think there's a bit of a trap in chasing down a job that makes us feel meaningful and filled of purpose when we might actually be quite okay with our job right now if we build a life that we love outside of that? Like, do you think we can get so caught up trying to find that perfect job? I remember in high school, the the careers counsellor would say, like, if you follow your purpose, you're never going to work a day in your life. And Mm -hmm. I'm someone who does something I love, but some days it still feels like work. 100%. Yeah. And I think it's probably worth putting into the context of this conversation. I'm a firm believer that work-life balance is one of the biggest loads of rubbish we were ever sold, especially in the modern era. Look at at it as a construct, work-life balance. Well, that suggests that they're on opposite ends of a seesaw and your job is to be permanently anxious about whether you're putting an equal amount of effort into either one. And if you're not, by God, you should feel guilty. You're focusing more on your work and letting some things slip at home bad you, or you're putting more into your personal life and letting some things slip at work, bad you. It is a recipe for anxiety and for stress. And realistically, in this modern era, when we all have smartphones and we're pretty well all contactable for work at all times, it's so impossible to have perfect balance. I'm much more of a believer in the idea of work-life integration, which is how does my work contribute to the rest of my life or how does the rest of my life contribute to my work? as well as work-life autonomy, which is I feel empowered to make choices in my personal life and my work life. I feel empowered to shape these things to suit me and my needs and my values and this chapter of life I'm in at the moment. Like the needs you have for your work are going to be fundamentally different if you have kids and a partner and a mortgage compared to when you're in your early 20s and coming out of university. And that's okay. But when you feel like you're able to have a say in that, that's when you're going to feel happy rather than being like, I'm just along for the ride. I'm a passenger in my career. right? And so, yeah, I think when we look at it from that lens, I, I actually don't really mind so much. I think you need an element of meaning and purpose in your career. Again, because we spend a lot of our time there, but it doesn't have to be the major contributor of it. You might get your big amount of meaning and purpose from something that's got nothing to do with your job. But if you can have a little side dish of meaning and purpose while you're working, I, I promise you it does make a difference. Yeah, especially given how many hours we spend in the workplace. It, yeah. Do you have you looked at any research about how much the people around us in the workplace end up shaping the way we're feeling? I know you mentioned about our manager at the very start, but what about our colleagues and the environment and the culture? Yeah, a huge amount. And this is why you know, I'm such a big believer in the work that we're doing at BU Happiness College now in working with organizations to help them improve workplace happiness because the potential for ripple effects is ginormous, right? Like the the idea that you can shape a workplace and that improves the life of nearly every person working in that space to then their customers, their families at home, their communities, it really does make a profound level of impact. Uh, yeah, there's been some amazing research on this idea of emotional contagion, uh, which is we, which I know contagion is a bit of a, maybe a hot word to use after the last few years that we've all been through, but let's go there. So we, we feel the emotions of others and we start to take them on. Everyone listening to this has experienced this. You know what this is like. But what's really fascinating is that emotional contagion effect isn't just in a one degree of separation. There's been some research that shows it goes up to three degrees of separation, which means your colleagues at work their stress and burnout can eventually have an impact on the level of stress and burnout that your kid's friend's parent (laughs) ends up experiencing. Because again, we're communal creatures, Mm. right? We, We really are communal creatures. So, 
I think such a vital ingredient of, of creating great workplaces is having a culture and a team connection where we all agree that we want the same thing, which is to work in a happy, fulfilling, thriving environment that allows us to do our work at the best of our abilities and to make a difference on something that we decide matters to us. Now, if the thing you want to make a difference on is your company's profit statement, hell, go for it, right? But if everyone on a team, regardless of approach, regardless of personality goes, hey, at the end of the day, we're all here for the same reason. We're all here because we want to be happy, fulfilled and perform at our best in a workplace and do work that we decide matters. Fantastic. That becomes priority number one for our culture. What, what can we do if we're working at a company where culture hasn't really been the priority? We don't really want to move jobs, but we feel like there's some changes that could be made to improve our lives and the lives of the people around us. What steps could we take just as an employee? Mm, burn everything down. No, I'm kidding. Um, don't burn everything down. I mean, look, the gap for a lot of teams and organizations is clarity. Like across the five different pillars of workplace happiness, which are well-being, engagement, culture, leadership, resilience. These are the five things that I found in my master's work and in my research over the last few years that really impact happiness in, in an organizational setting. All five of them in some way have ended up having a moment in the spotlight over the last few decades where they're a buzzword, right? A lot of organizations talk about staff well-being. A lot of organizations do engagement surveys. A lot of organizations talk about culture or the need for good leadership or how resilient is our team to burnout and turnover. But if they don't go past that surface level of it just being a buzzword and a concept, nothing really happens. And so I think if you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, my organization, they're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk, right? We're talking about culture, but it hasn't been a priority for a long time. We're starting to feel the impact of it. I would advise that you take that to your leader or manager, head of people and culture, head of HR, whoever it is, and go, hey, I was listening to this thing the other day. And you know, it was just highlighting how important culture is. I'm not actually clear on what our cultural standards are for being a great member of this team. What does it look like to be a great member of this organization? Now, is it our values on the wall? Because even then, how are they shown in practice, right? Is it our vision and mission statement? Is it our diversity, equity, inclusion protocols? These all, yes, can make a difference, but only if they're clear and everyone understands them and everyone agrees to uphold them. If it's not put into action, it's just a really, really nice idea, right? Mm. We need to actually turn into something tangible. So, my my go-to if you're like, hey, I want to influence a, a better culture in the organization is just be the one who leads those conversations and go, I think it's worth us exploring. Now, whether you do this yourselves or you bring in someone you know, like myself or there's, there's other people who do this for a living who can help facilitate those conversations and bring clarity to it to go, oh, this is what we stand for. I promise you, once you have clarity, once you have tangibility, it's so much easier to follow through on. Because mm. it's really easy to write out your, your vision, your mission statement, put your values on the wall, have different policies for things that are trying to make your workplace more inclusive. But if no one reads them and acts on them, they're kind of pointless, aren't they? <laughs> I heard it described once in such a beautiful analogy. They said, imagine a high-performing sporting team and they've got the people who are the best of the best in their role, but they're not gelling as a team. They're not working together. And so, you know, the head coach sits down and go, okay, here's our vision for the upcoming season. And just says, win a lot of games. Cool. How are we going to win a lot of games? And 
unless that's been boiled into some strategy, unless that's been boiled into some expectations of how each player performs their role and what it means to work well as a team, unless that's been boiled into practices that people do week to week, it doesn't matter. But even then, as you said, if you've got a great handbook of like, here's what it means to be a great team player, here's our strategies, here's our plays we're going to run to help us score more often, if no one's read the damn thing, they're just going to walk out onto the field and just fumble. It's the same in organizations. If people aren't actively engaged and involved in those five levers, well-being, engagement, culture, leadership, and resilience, then don't expect them to do the play as well. Mm, yeah. And what, and what about if it doesn't get better and there's a play, you're in a workplace where you feel disengaged, maybe you feel burnt out. What should we be doing at that point? Is that a point where we should be going, should we really still be working at this place? Like, is it going to be harmful to our long-term happiness, our long-term health. Yeah. I mean, this is so common. We literally have a term for it in common, you know, vernacular and common society, golden handcuffs, Mm. right? How often have we heard of people who are deeply unhappy and unfulfilled in their career, but they're getting paid pretty damn well and they've sunk cost fallacy. They've come that fast. They might as well keep going and they just keep living that way, right? At at the roadshow, I shared... And again, it's quite a sobering thing to interact with, but I think there's a lot of value in it. Um, An Australian palliative nurse called Bronnie Ware who did a massive study on the common regrets people had on their deathbed. And uh, I can tell you in those top five common regrets that came through, regardless of age, background, culture, gender, those five things that people often looked back on their life and went, I wish I did that differently. One of the most common is I wish I didn't work so hard. So there's one straight away. Another one is I wish I lived a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me which loops back to what I said before about you getting clear on what a happy and successful career means to you right, as an individual. And, and another one of those top five is I wish I'd let myself be happy or I wish I'd learned the skills to be happy. Again, highlighting the importance of happiness. My hope is that people don't wait until the end of their career or the end of their life to go, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm a statistic. I'm one of those common regrets. Right? And so I think if it's gone on long enough, hmm. Right, Brene Brown has a great thing. She goes, we're not having the same conversation three times, which I love. So if you've had the conversation with your leaders and managers about like, this is really important to me. I've got some ideas on how we could improve it. That's important. Don't just go in and be like, fix it, do better, right? But be an active contributor to the solution. So be like, hey, I've noticed that, let's say it's culture. We've got a bit of a cultural gap here. People aren't really clear on what it means to be a great member of this team. We're not communicating well and gelling well. I've got some ideas on how we could improve it right? And then they're like, yeah, okay, let's follow through on that. If you have that conversation the first time and nothing happens, I always give benefit of the doubt. I go, let's have a second one in case we didn't communicate it clearly enough or in case massive curveballs and other priorities popped up. But after the second time, like we're not having the same conversation a third time. By then I'm looking for other options. And, and I know that can be scary, but you kind of, and I'm a big believer of pick your hard right? It's hard and difficult to change careers or change workplace. It's also very hard and difficult to reach the end of your career and life and look back with regret. So pick which one you think you can live with at the end of the day. Mm. I think it's easy for us to get quite stuck though, because I talk to many people and they, they're feeling sort of disengaged. They're feeling that discomfort. They're not really enjoying their workplace, but the thought of leaving and doing something different and potentially experiencing this all over again and can stop us actually taking any action. 100%. And that's why I think there's more, there's got to be some onus on workplaces themselves as well, 
right? Again, we've spoke before about like the strategic benefit and advantage of a workplace valuing happiness. But I also think there are a lot of people out there who are unhappy and unfulfilled and unsatisfied in their career who would love to jump ship to an organization that can put their money where their mouth is and prove it. It's part of why we do something called the happy workplace accreditation, where we actually go and test organizations on those five pillars. And if they pass, they get accredited. And our goal is as that builds out, it's like a heart foundation tick, but for good workplaces rather than good food. Now, if you've got that all over your employer branding, on your email signatures, on your website, we're proudly independently assessed and accredited as a happy workplace. Guess where people are going to start feeling a lot more comfortable jumping ship to because there's less Mm -hmm. risk now for them, right? They're, They're more likely to go, well, this is a better chance I'm going to land in something good rather than, as you said, go through all this change only to end up again in another poor culture or poor team that doesn't align with my values. On that workplace accreditation topic, what are some signs like if I'm looking for a new job right now, how can I sort of assess from the outside if the workplace hasn't done the accreditation that it could be a happy workplace, a workplace that's going to be fulfilling and add value to my life? I mean, the first one is if you can talk to people who work there or have even recently worked there, that's always valuable to get in. So, I think, is it called Glassdoor? There's a whole website dedicated to employee experience of organizations. So, have a little cheeky browse of that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, The other thing, again, it's easier for you to get clarity on whether it's going to align with what you need if you're clear on what you need. So, once you've done that first step we spoke about at the start of this conversation and you're like, this is what matters most to me in a career go start looking at the company's website, at their LinkedIn, at follow some of the key decision makers and leaders in that company and go, is what they're putting out into the world, is the story they're telling, is the actions they're taking, do those align with what I've determined matter most to me? Now, look, obviously, some of that can be marketing spin. We've seen all the issues with greenwashing and everything happening there. But it's still giving you a better likelihood of landing in something that aligns than if you don't do that due diligence first. Um, So, yeah, definitely take the time to A, get clear on what matters to you and then go stress test organizations that you're looking at. Yeah, it's interesting thinking of it from an investment point of view. Often analysts will spend 50 to 100 hours researching a company and talking to key personnel and actually going to the store to assess if they want to put their money in that business. But Thinking about it in terms of us as an individual, we're putting 40, 50 hours a week into that business. We're putting our mental health into that business. We're putting a lot of ourselves in there. So Mm. we should be doing more due diligence to check that it's going to be a good workplace for us. A hundred percent. And don't be afraid to have those conversations through the hiring process too, right? I, I think gone are the days where an interview process was the the prospective employer or company just peppering you with questions and you need to prove yourself to them to now being more of an even conversation. Yeah. It's like, hey, yeah, like, of course, I need to prove myself to you and show why I'm going to be a good member of your team. But equally, you've got to kind of prove yourselves to me and show why you're going to be a good fit for me and why I'm going to enjoy working here and perform well here. When you have that more honest conversation throughout the interview process and you can align a, a bit more evenly, it sets you up for a much better working relationship. Yeah, especially in this employment environment, like you've got the opportunity and permission to ask these questions and to actually figure out, well, is that workplace going to be a good fit? You might be a great addition to the team, but are they going to be a great addition to your life? 100%, 100%. Yeah. Are there any other sort of things that we could be doing 
this week in a smaller scale to boost our happiness at work that might not be as dramatic as talking to our management about changing the culture or jumping ship or finding a bit more purpose in our job? Mm. I think there's two really accessible practices. I will put a caveat on these and say don't expect it to uh, completely change how you feel about a job if you don't enjoy it. They're more going to um, uh, kind of magnify the good moments and give you the space to sort of enjoy them. I think the challenge with the human brain sometimes is it gets really good at focusing on what's going wrong or what we don't like and it doesn't do as well at noticing what's going right or what we do like. So from the research, the two practices we can all do week to week that are free and accessible that are shown to have an impact on how we feel about our job and our working life uh, first of all, it's gratitude practice like we spoke about last time. We spoke last time in very broad terms, but you can do this with work. So what went well today? What am I proud of today? What are the aspects I'm enjoying at work and why? Spending a bit of time consciously noticing them. And the other one is something called third space practice, uh, which is becoming even more important now that you know a fair chunk of industries are starting to have people work from home where the space between you know work life and home life and what hat we're wearing at any given time is increasingly blurred. Uh, so third space practice is this idea of between work and home, we should have a space where we can kind of just change role. They describe it as like, you know, whether we're wearing our work hat or our home hat. Um, and a lot of the time we don't give ourselves the the space to kind of let that settle. And what that often leads to is kind of a an overflow. So we take, we've had a particularly stressful, challenging day at work. We bring that home. You know, our partner asked for something and before we know it, we've had a little bit of a snippy snap at them and we're like, oh, that wasn't about them. That's about my stress from work. But we just didn't have the time to switch role or to mm. process that and let it go. So, there's some great research around this idea of even if it's just 15 minutes, just taking a space to kind of like decompress and change the role that we're in, the hat we're in. Um, for me, I work from home a lot of the time. Um, the letterbox is about a 300-meter walk down the road. I'm on a rural property and it's just like a perfect walk down, touch the letterbox, walk back. And so sometimes if I had a particularly challenging day, my wife will get home and I'll be like, hey, I just need to walk to the letterbox and then I'm going to be fully here for you when you get back. I then feel better about how I'm showing up at home and how I'm showing up at work. Um, I've heard other people say they do it. They've got a park or they go to the gym on the way home. Some people do it when they get home, jump straight in the shower and change. Uh, some people do the pull into the driveway and just sit in the car for a moment before you go inside, right? So whatever it is for you, if you've got a space that you're like, this is just my space for me, to check in with myself and to kind of switch what hat I'm wearing in my life, uh, that can help us feel a bit better overall. Mm, that's a really interesting idea. I guess I hadn't thought of it myself, but I'm probably someone that commuted um, every day. So sitting on the train or waiting at the train station, listening to music or a podcast probably just did that for me automatically. So mm -hmm. now it's thinking, okay, if I'm working from home, what am I doing instead? And I usually try and do a walk or something like that. Yeah. So I guess it's something that some people might be doing automatically and some people might be going, okay, since we've been working from home, this might be something I can try now. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was the investing in your career and career goals because a lot of things that might help us long-term in terms of purpose, earning more, we might have to spend a bit more time on a project or we might have to do another qualification. And how do you balance the investing that money and the time into your career today for a, a future outcome that's not necessarily guaranteed? And because like for me, doing a, 
another course on the side. Like I have to sacrifice time on the weekend and I'm adding to my ever-increasing hex debt. And so for me, I, I'm happy making that sacrifice because I know long-term it's going to be worth it. But I'm also enjoying the challenge today. But mm. how can people think about that in their own lives, Declan? Yeah, so I think the question here, correct me if I'm wrong, is how does delayed gratification play into happiness? Because if and we, our careers. And- yeah, and our careers, right? Because if we were to think about what's going to make me happiest and our only version of happiness that we're thinking of is pleasure, joy, excitement, that real hedonic version of happiness, then so many things wouldn't get done, right? I, I mean, I mentioned before, I've just submitted my master's thesis. I promise you I would not have elected to do a master's thesis if I was just focused on immediate happiness. Um, so it had to stand for something more, right? Now, it's kind of the same with our careers. We need to look at the bigger picture and zoom out and go, am I willing to make this sacrifice? Any goal that we pursue has an impact on other areas of our life and it demands something of us. And a lot of the time, people don't sit and consider the impact and consequences of their goal until they're 10 steps down the line and they're feeling resentful towards the goal, right? They're like, oh, damn it. This thing that I thought would bring me happiness is now just taking me so much more time and effort. And so... I think if you sit down and go, what's the impact of this and what's the sacrifice? Am I willing to make it? Okay, well, now we can make better decisions. So, in my case, I went, hey, I'm looking at doing a master's thesis and stepping back into it. I know it's going to take a lot more time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take things at BU Happiness College being reshuffled around so I can have some days off to focus on it. What's the grand picture of it? And for me, this sense of pride, of contribution to the research, of accomplishment, uh, that outweighed the immediacy of pleasure. So I was like, for me, I'm making the decision that pride, accomplishment, and contribution are more important in this chapter of my life than immediate pleasure and gratification. Uh, there's been amazing work on this. For those who are familiar, or if you're not checking out, Dan Gilbert is a researcher um, who does a great book called Stumbling on Happiness. I think he has a TED Talk too, if you search his name. But he said a lot of things that we think will bring us happiness or we're told to bring us happiness actually have a happiness trade-off. Career is one of them. The most popular one, which I always like to share and people get mad at me until I explain it, is um, we're often told that having kids and becoming parents will make your life happier. Uh, That has been clinically and repeatedly disproven if you look at it from a hedonic lens. So your sense of pleasure and joy and excitement plummets when you have a kid, right? It takes ages to come back. But your sense of meaning, purpose, connection, contentment, that rises when you have kids. And so I think, again, same sort of thing we've got to ask there as with our careers, is this trade-off worth it? Is it a trade-off that I want to take? I think that's a good question for everyone to think about coming away from this episode. But Declan, I know you're a big fan of practical activities. So for someone that's been listening to this conversation while they've been catching the train from work or mowing their lawn or walking their dog, what's one practical activity that we could do when we get a chance to sit and think for a while later today? So the first one I'd recommend is two-word check-in. We actually use this with our team every single week. Um, We ask our team to go, hey, if you were to describe how you're feeling about work in two words and two words only, what would they be? It cuts past a lot of the overthinking. Uh, And obviously, you need to have really high psychological safety and trust for people to give honest answers for that. But I think just as an individual, you can go, if I was to describe how I'm feeling about my job at the moment in two words only, what two words come to mind? That's going to give you such a clear indicator of where you're currently sitting. So that would be step one as, as a working professional, as an individual. Uh, I would also then recommend that you do what we said at the start, which is go, okay, well, if I was to put in a couple of dot points, what matters most to me in a career? 
what would that look like? Bringing clarity to your definition of a happy, successful career. So I'd start with those two as an individual. I mentioned before, Ikigai is a book can help with that second part. Uh, If you're a leader or manager or organization listening to this and you're like, you know what? I do think that we say people are our greatest asset, but now that I actually look at it, we're probably not investing enough into our people or our culture. We're not being really proactive and intentional with that. We're not leveraging that asset to be our greatest asset and we want to do more for our people. Again, I would start by getting clear on those five levers of a happy workplace. So I'd go, do we currently have tangible upheld practices for well-being, engagement, culture, leadership, and resilience. Whichever ones you don't, that's where we start, right? And if you want to get a bit of a a gauge on that, I seem to always give exclusives when I jump on your podcast and show. So, I will share for for people listening uh, very soon, maybe not immediately when this podcast episode comes out, but very soon, we're going to have a free screening tool developed that organizations can utilize to test how they score in those five areas and get a gauge on whether they would pass for our accreditation or if they wouldn't, what strategies they need to take to improve so that they can pass. Um, So, that should be available quite soon. So, if you go to uh, beyouhappinesscollege.com and look at the workplace side of of our website, I'm sure when it's ready, you'll be able to jump into that and that's um, yeah free for organizations to utilize. Amazing. Declan, you're always full of fantastic resources. So, I'll be sure to link everything in the show notes. And you're also a great follow on LinkedIn and Instagram if people want a daily boost of happiness in their life. So, Declan, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, 
or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.